that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, now as we indeed turn to your word, we've prayed a lot about it in our singing today, that you would come and bear your sacred witness to your word and give power to your word. And we pray that you would speak to us as you surely will speak to us and do speak to us every time we look to your word. And our prayer now is that you give us ears to hear. We just uh, read Jesus' words calling on his first hearers, those who had ears to hear, to listen. We pray that you'll grant us ears to hear today and to hear what Jesus says. Um, it is countercultural. It's even counter-church cultural. So all the more help us to hear his voice penetrating all of the false voices we've heard, all of the delusions and deceptions that have been cast at us. Help the light of your word and truth to penetrate through them to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this sermon is A Seedy Story of Assorted Soils. Um, Last week we surveyed the entire section in Matthew 13, and if you missed that, uh, I would encourage you to listen to it. It's an overview of the whole chapter. Now we're going to take an overview of the first parable of the eight that Jesus tells. And since Jesus means it to be introductory to all the parables and means understanding of it to be foundational to understanding the rest, we'll probably take uh, about three weeks to go through this first parable. And so seedy, it's a seedy story. How is it a seedy story? Well, that word can have two meanings in common use. It can mean Seedy in the sense of full of seeds, like you can have seedy bread. I like seedy bread. Seedy granola bars. I like seedy granola bars or seedy granola. Seedy energy bars, seedy pesto, seedy cookies. Is it seedy in that sense? But there's another sense in which we use the word meaning uh, disreputable, shady, low. So what's seedy about this story? We'll see. Just remain seated. I promise. So Jesus makes this his introductory parable. Let's look at it closely, first considering the setting, Roman numeral one, the setting. I've translated the Greek text for you there. On that day, Jesus came out of the house and tried sitting alongside the sea, and many crowds gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and all the crowd was standing on the shore. First, we need to note the day, capital letter A, the day. Don't fly past what Matthew says because it's very important. He says, on that day. That's a very specific time notice. Uh, Matthew did not uh, waste words, and he really wants us to know that day, that particular day, what had happened that day. Well, remember when Matthew wrote his gospel, he didn't write the last verse of chapter 12 and then write a big 13 and start writing another chapter. He simply wrote in a flow. So naturally, we should look up the parallel, look up the column to see what happened that day. What had happened that day? Well, he healed a man who was demonized, and the Pharisees, the brain trust, uh, unable to see the truth of why he did what he did and who he was, came up with the explanation that he did what he did by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul. And what the Holy Spirit was doing through Jesus, they attributed to the power of Satan. And Jesus responded to that very forcefully and said that in saying that, they had committed the one unpardonable, unforgivable sin in attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. And he'd said as a consequence of that, 
that generation, note this well, that generation would be like a man out of whom a demon had simply gone and then came back, said, I'll go back to my house. I found no rest. And when he comes back to the man, he finds the man swept, tidied, set in order, but nobody home, nobody to block his entry. So he said, I'll get out my Rolodex and get my seven nastiest friends and we will party down in this place. And Jesus says that's like this generation, that in the rejection of him, they'd rejected God and they would be abandoned by the Holy Spirit whom they had blasphemed. And that would leave their house moral, yes, religious, yes, godless, God forsaken, and open to any demonic interference. That day is this day. And also on that day, he was teaching his disciples and his family came out and wanted to wanted a word with him, wanted to drop what he was doing and come out and listen to them because they thought he was beside himself. And remember Jesus said, well, who's my mother and who are my sisters? And he gestures to his disciples around him and says, this is my mother, brother, sisters, all who do the will of my heavenly father and hear the word of God. That's my mother, sister, and brother. So it's that day on which we are reading about these parables, that weighty, pivotal day in his ministry, after which he will never again say, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. There's a change that this chapter explains as we saw last week. So the parables have to be understood in that light. Letter B, Jesus meant to continue his teaching, and we see he had two plans, the plans. There are two plans. There's a plan A and a plan B in verses 1, B, and 2. He tried sitting along the sea. That's what grammatically you could call a conative imperfect. It's an action that is attempted but not completed. He tries to sit down and teach, but there are just so many crowds. Notice that Matthew says, many crowds. Well, what's a crowd already? A crowd is a bunch of people. What are many crowds? <laughs> many bunches of people. I, I was tempted to translate it a uh, massive crowd, but I decided to just go for the literal and explain it to you like I just did. Massive crowd. So sitting on the shore of this lake, there was no way. And sitting was the normal teaching posture. Well, there was just no way. No way that he would be heard or seen by most people. There were just too many people. So he went to plan B, and plan B was that he got into a boat. And you can just picture this in your mind. Picture something of a cove, and the boat goes out, whether it goes out five, ten feet now. Now he's moved out, and he can see all of them in the sloping shore that goes up from the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee there. They can see him, and he can see them. In fact, let me tell you a little bit more about that. There are a number of coves along the north and northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And there's one particular one that is thought to be probably, possibly where he did this teaching. It's called uh, Sower's Cove, or it's also called the Bay of Parables. And because in this little bay, there's a perfect natural amphitheater that a boat set out has perfect acoustics both to be heard and to, and to hear. Uh, in fact, there's an article from the 70s of people who did scientific tests on how sound carries at that location and found that it carries enough to be heard by five to 7,000 people. In fact, I went to a webpage where somebody made a recording 
uh, from up on the top of the hillside of a person reading this parable on the lakeside. And you can hear, the person doesn't have a great carrying voice particularly, but you can hear him clearly from the top of the hill. So that's what Jesus was doing here. He was speaking clearly because the important thing was that they hear his voice. That's plan B. That's the plan he went with. So we're all set now. Without a word of explanation, Matthew records Jesus saying nothing prefatory. He simply launches into this parable. So let's look at this parable in overview today. Roman numeral two, the sowing. That is S-O-W. Not what a lady does in her sewing room, but what a farmer does out in the field. The sowing, S-O-W-I-N-G. And uh, I can just maybe say another remark about these parables. All these parables are drawn from common life, and you would not see sowing in all parts of the Holy Land, but in Galilee you would see a lot of exactly what Jesus describes here, uh, the, the farmer sowing seeds. So the first thing I want to look at together, capital letter A, is one big picture. Remember, most of these parables have a central point that they make, uh, sometimes they make more than one, but generally there's a central point. In this parable, there are a number of moving parts. There are four kinds of soil. So I want to make sure that we get the big picture, because although there, is, there are many uh, four kinds of soil and four different reactions to the seed, there is one central point. And it's very simply understood. You, you and I don't have to be involved in agriculture to figure this out. When a farmer goes out with a bag of seed and he's throwing seed, there's just one thing that he's interested in seeing happen. What's the one thing that he wants to see come of that? Fruit, a harvest. He wants something he can sell to put food on his table, to put gas in his tank in our, in our culture, in our day. And, and, and so it was there. The one thing that matters is the farmer wants to see fruit. So there are four kinds of soil depicted here. Of those four, how many produce fruit? Do four produce fruit? Three? Two? How about one? Only one produces fruit. Now you say, oh, Pastor Dan, it just so irritates me when you say something so obvious and you take so long to say it. Surely nobody could miss that. Oh, but wait. Yes, indeed, they do. And there's, in fact, a seminary not far from us that put out teachers and graduates who think that three of these soils represent saved people. They're forced to say the one because Jesus says that Satan steals away the seed so that they can't believe and be saved. So that's hard to get around. But they think that, the, that three of the soils represent uh, uh, saved people because in each of them the seed does living things. There's action, there's, there's, there's life happening from the seed, and so that's the free grace of God to them. But, the, but that's where we return back to what we just spent a few minutes on. What's the one thing that the farmer wants? He wants not just to see greenery, not just to see little things coming up. He wants to get fruit. He wants to get a harvest out of that, and there's only one. Well, this theme of fruit, then, is this a common theme in the Gospel of Matthew? It's a very common theme in the Gospel of Matthew. You remember the first and only sermon that we have from John the Baptist in chapter 3. What does he say? He calls them to repent. You know that. What does he go on to say? Therefore, do what in keeping with repentance? Bear fruit. Bear fruit. If you repent, you will bear fruit. 
You won't simply say you repent. You won't say you feel bad. You won't say you feel stirred or emotionally moved. You'll bear fruit. He says, and don't think you can just say we have Abraham for a father. God can make children to Abraham out of these stones. The axe is already laid up the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And no, I call this movement gutless grace. They call themselves free grace, but no gutless grace. The fire is not to purify. It's to judge and destroy. In chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, John, uh, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. You, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good free tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And he goes on to tell the story of the two builders uh, who build their house on two foundations and one crashes. And he talks about the prophets who come up saying, oh, we did this and that and the other thing in your name. And he says, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness. No, no, it's all about fruit. And this story, four soils, but it's all about fruit. And only one of the four soils bear fruit. That's the big picture Now, letter B then, let's turn to the four little pictures that make that one big picture. The four little pictures, and that's just simply the four soils. The first is seed sown along the path. Sown along the path. And he spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Look, out went the sower to sow. Now, that look means picture this. I want you to see this in your mind's eye. And they, all of them could. It was a very common picture. Look, out went the sower to sow, and as he sowed, on the one hand, some fell along the way, and the birds came and devoured them. So what's this path? Path along fields. A path would go along fields, and it would be trampled down, hard soil flat, as the sowers and the workers go up and down these paths, not trampling on the crop, obviously, but walking along the path. And so as he's reaching into his bag and sowing seed, some of the seed lands on the path. What's on the path? Just hard trampled soil. And so the seed lies there and lying there, it is very quickly pecked up by birds who, who know how this works. <laughs> and they know they don't even have to peck under the soil to get this. It's just lying there, snatched to, ready for them to snap up. When we lived in Sacramento, Sacramento, the, the soil <laughs> in our yard was clay. It was river clay. It was miserable. There was a, a top layer that the builders put on, and then it was just clay. Uh, when, some of you will know this. You, you dig your shovel in, and you swing it, and you go staggering back because all the soil still on your shovel. It's just stuck to your shovel, five pounds of clay. And so it is there. It's, it's just miserable, hard clay. Well, we paid a guy to uh, put in a, a lawn in our big backyard, and um, We'd been, he'd been recommended because I guess the lady said that he puts in more sprinklers than Carter has little liver pills. Some of you will know that saying. And yeah, he put in a lot of sprinklers, but the thing is he, he chewed up that clay a little bit, put a bunch of seed on it, and you know what we got to watch happening in the weeks to come? Happy little birdies fluttering down and eating our whole lawn. Little patches came up here and there. But it was, a, it was a great, you know, it was a very humanitarian thing, I guess, for the birds. But it didn't get as much of a line. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Seeds lying there. Birds pack it up. Nothing happens. 
What does that mean? Well, he doesn't tell the crowds. Later, when these disciples came up and asked him about it, then he explains it to them. That's verses 18 and 19 is the interpretation. You, therefore, must hear the parable of the sower. Now, when we get to the middle section, we'll see hearing is a big deal. The crowds don't hear, the crowds won't hear, and the parables are told to them who will not hear. But, but his believers, his disciples do hear. So he says, you've got to... In, in fact, the word you is, is very much emphasized. That's why I translate it that way. You. Contrast to them. They don't hear, they won't hear. But you must hear the parable of the sower. Everyone hearing the word of the kingdom and yet not comprehending, the wicked one comes and seizes what has been poked at, sown in his heart. This is the one who is sown along the way. So... First of all, notice that he calls them to hear. It's not automatic. Yes, they hear by grace, but they are to hear. They, in their renewed will, their renewed mind, they are to hear. In fact, Mark, in his telling of this same story, notes that Jesus makes a big point of this. When they asked him to explain, in Mark 4.13, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So you see, Jesus sees this as being a very foundational Uh, parable to understand. So the first picture then is of seed that lands along the sower's path, doesn't go into the soil at all, and the birds come and peck it up. Jesus says that's like the person who hears the word of God, the word about the kingdom, and doesn't understand it, and it's just like lying on the surface of his heart. Because as he later explains, and we read together, what he means by soil is he means heart. So these four soils are four different kinds of heart. And this is a hard heart, a hard heart to whom the Word of God is told. You say, but the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Yes, it is. And it just lies on the surface of this person's heart. And so Satan comes and snatches it away. How does he do that? Thousand shiny objects. (laughs) A thousand shiny objects. You, if you're in Twitter, you see it all the time. You try to tell any bit of God's truth to one of these uh, keyboard warrior atheists, and he's just got a sight that he goes and cuts and pastes, cuts and pastes, cuts and pastes. He doesn't think about it at all. He doesn't, engage. he doesn't even know what you said. I would wager you any kind of money that if you could get them to talk to you, most of them wouldn't even be able to understand or explain what you just said. But it triggers a response, and the seed gets pecked up, and it's gone. So this is a very common uh, sort of um, story. As somebody wrote this uh, about, the, um, about the land of Galilee, fields of grain are much more common in Galilee than in Judea or Samaria. Roads and paths near a grain field would typically run along the edges of the field. These roads would be hard and packed down before the rain came. Thus, as the sower was casting a seed, many would have fallen into the road itself, remain exposed to any ravenous birds. And that's exactly what happens here. As they hear the word of God, the life-giving word of God, and yet it's picked up before even anything happens, and it's gone. Second, seed sown along rocky areas. Seed sown along rocky areas. And just to tell you, I mean to come back, my, my present thinking is in two sweeps. We'll take a closer look at the first three soils, and then a closer look in the fourth soil in two sermons. So... On rocky soils, number two, the parable in verses five and six, and on the other hand, others fell upon the rocky areas where it does not have much earth, and immediately they sprang up on account of not having 
depth of earth. But when the sun sprang up, they were burned. And on account of not having root, they dried up. Palestine is a very rocky area. You know, you, you look at much pictures or talk to people who've been there and you know why the uh, preferred method of execution was there's always a rock there. <laughs> there's always a rocky, lots of rocks, in fact, easy and readily at hand. And that's great, but not so great if you're a, a farmer. I remember a scene from, uh, from uh, How the West Was One where a farmer complains that where he was living when he, he drew down his well and brought up the bucket and it just had, was full of rocks. He decided he better move. Well, that sounds pretty much like what this country has described to me as being like. And the thing is, when there is bedrock... Uh, limestone or, or whatever kind of rock and dirt has covered it well you can't see that with your naked eye you can't tell whether that that soil goes down a half an inch or five feet you can't tell by looking at it so the seed lands on this soil but the thing is it's it's only very thin the word in itself could mean that there's a bunch of rocks in it but, but Jesus will later say there's no depth of soil so that's that's the kind of picture he wants us to see that there's just a, a thin coat of dirt. To the naked eye, it looks like a fine place to throw seed. But in fact, it's only a half inch thick. It's only a, a little bit deep. It, there's not much depth at all to it. And so what happens then is that the, spree, the seed very quickly springs up, but it doesn't last very long. Why? Two problems, one from outside and one from inside. That Jesus uses a, a very similar word saying, Okay, sure, the seed springs up, but then the sun springs up. The seed, the, the seed comes right up, and the sun also comes right up. And so there's a problem from outside, the heat of the sun battering on these plants. Well, it batters on all plants, but some plants give fruit. Why does this not? Well, because the plants that give fruit, their, their roots might go down one, two, three feet, but these just go down perhaps a half an inch or an inch or two. And so there's no moisture as the soil dries up that's it for the plant there, there's no way for it to get moisture and to live and so from the outside comes from the burning and from the inside comes uh, the drying up and so it dries up it withers it's worthless it dies it never bears fruit so what's the meaning of that the interpretation verses 20 and 21 but the one who is sown upon the rocky areas this is he who hears the word and immediately with joy receives it but he does not have root in himself, but instead is temporary. And when tribulation or persecution happens on account of the word, immediately he is tripped up, which is to say he apostatizes, he falls away. That's the interpretation. So it penetrates in this individual's heart to a degree. Yes, there is some activity. Yes, there's an emotional response the person sees some of the glories of the gospel. You can read this in Hebrews 6. He gets a taste of it. He gets a glimpse of it. He gets the idea of how good the gospel is, and he's very excited. Perhaps he even makes some changes in his life. There's, there's a flurry of activity, perhaps. Ah, ah, but it's short-lived. It's short-lived during this, this quiet, peaceful period, but once there's pressure on the person, once there's pressure from outside, once there's tribulation or persecution because of the word, and he finds that, that his friends are not as excited about his change as he is, 
And that when he tells them, they don't instantly respond like he does. That they shun him or they mock him or he starts getting the pressure that comes. That Jesus has said again and again in this gospel, we should expect to happen. And what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? What should we do when that happens? Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. But they are not thinking about the reward in heaven. They're still thinking about life right here and life right now. And so, so they wither out and they fall away. See, because hanging in there is what marks you as a Christian. Yes, a person is marked as a Christian by his profession of faith, but he's also marked by his endurance. This is why we fall into a lot of trouble, because we don't include in our definition of what a Christian is that fact, that very strong scriptural fact. The fact that the definition of a, of a person is somebody who denies himself, who picks up his cross, professes faith in Christ, and endures to the end. That's what a Christian is. And so anybody who can do some of that and then fall away does not meet the definition of Christian. Here it is right here. You see it in the book of Hebrews. that In the book of Hebrews, we're members of his house if we hold fast the confidence of our faith until the end. So it's part of the definition of a Christian that a Christian... Uh, how, by the way, if you have died to your old life, how do you go back to it? And I just would make the simple observation that if you can go back to it, well, then you didn't die to it, did you? You didn't die. You left it for a moment, but you went right back. Just like, just like that dog in Second Peter hawks up the vomit and then goes back and laps it right back up. That's what we're looking at here. Temporary. Exciting. Temporary. You ask any pastor, and of course we like to hear positive things, and there are exceptions to what I'm about to say, praise God. But ask any pastor uh, what his expectation is when somebody who's there for the first time and raves about how this is just the best church he's ever been to, what the odds are he'd put on seeing that person the next week. (laughs) The more excited it seems like, I'm not saying this to be cynical, I promise you I'm not, but it just seems like the more excited on the first visit, the less likely a second visit. Praise God, I do no exceptions, but that's what this is talking about. Third then, the seed sown on the thorns. Parable is in verse 7, and others fell upon the thorns and came up, and up came the thorns and choked them. Well, it's sown upon the thorns, Jesus says, so the thorns are already there. It may be that they were mown down and they can't be seen, or it may be that they're simply in the soil because weeds just travel, don't they? weeds just travel. They travel with the little birds who fly around and plant them in their special little bird way. And so there's weeds everywhere. You don't need to go out and buy, buy uh, weeds, do you, at the, uh, at the, at the uh, plant store? Uh, no, they're already there. And you don't have to see them. And so when you sow your seeds on ground that has weeds in it, well, then when the seeds come up, the weeds will also come up And the weeds will take the nourishment from the soil and will choke out what you have planted so that the resources in the soil are exhausted by the weeds. Now, here's an interesting thing to note, though, and worth noting. All soil will have rocks and weeds unless the rocks and the weeds are pulled out. Just just a little notice. It'll just about all be hard, and it'll all have rocks and weeds unless something is done to plow it up 
Get rid of the rocks and get rid of the weeds. Worth noting, not, not a subtle point. What's the interpretation then in verse 22? But he who is sown into the thorns, this is he who hears the word and the anxiety of the age and the deceit of wealth chokes the word and he proves fruitless. Well, see now, as I said, I said, I just quoted Jesus saying that when he says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And just remind me, what do you do on a cross? You die, and other things you do on a cross are no other things. That's, that's all a cross is for. It's for dying on. Jesus says you deny yourself and you pick up your cross. That's if, for anyone who would follow him. But here's this person who, who is, may, has made motions of following him, yes, but he's divided. Why? Well, because you find out when the growth happens, he didn't really deny himself. Or else he'd be deaf to the anxieties of the age. He already would have said goodbye to them in saying goodbye to his self apart from Christ. He would have said goodbye to them. And their calls would have no pull on him. They'd have no purchase on him. And none that he couldn't shake off in the power of the Lord. But he is torn and he is hearing them still. And they still call to him. And they still resonate with him. Why? Because he didn't deny himself. Because he didn't die to himself. Because he tried to take Jesus in. Because Jesus was his co-pilot. Because he was giving Jesus a chance. Because he let Jesus in a little bit. And then when the pressure starts coming on, you find out he doesn't have root. And when the calls of the world start coming in, you find out he doesn't have purchase. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a purity of holding the word and the word alone in his heart. I think if you're, if you're watching the news, you're finding that out a lot in these days that people who in more peaceful times when Christianity was better tolerated, rose to be our leaders and our spokespeople. They're strongly pro-life. They're strongly pro-inerrancy. They're strongly pro-gospel. Oh, but, but let, let the pressure start, especially the social pressure. And it becomes costly to be really serious about any of those positions beyond in name only. But you don't actually want to see abortion made illegal. Really, you know, and you don't really want to make any waves about this or that other doctrine because then you know you lose your friends and you lose your invitations to the, to the big conferences and the nicer tea parties and, and so forth. And, and well, that's when people find out what you really love. When the pressure's on, right? When the calls, the siren calls come wafting in. Does the person listen to the word of God alone? Or does he listen to the voice of the world? Because as I've, I've reminded you, and I'll never stop reminding you, the world doesn't give up on you when you become a Christian. Satan doesn't give up on you. If only they did. But they don't. And me, in telling you this, it's not just because I'm, I'm a, a, a negative old cuss, though I may well be. But this is what Paul did with the Thessalonians, right? He says to them, that you became subject to tribulation. And you'll remember, we told you that was going to happen when we were there. So that was part of his evangelism. <laughs> he evangelized them, won them to the Lord, and told them there's going to be persecution. And there was, and he said, see, told you. <laughs> told you to expect it. Because Satan doesn't say, oh, look, this person became a Christian. <laughs> I 
thought I'd get him. Oh, well, I better do something else. And the world doesn't say, oh, I've lost John. I've lost Joan. Oh, oh well, too bad. I guess they're gone for good. Let me look for someone. No, no. They don't give up till we're, till we're with Jesus. They don't give up as long as we're here. And there's always the calls and there's always the pressure. And, and it's always designed in the way that has our name on it. I remember a, a fellow in L.A. told me his definition of tribulation is what makes you tribulate. <laughs> it's, a, it's, the, it's what puts pressure on you. It's what puts pressure on me. And so the world doesn't give up. And if the person has so, uh, weed sown, sorry, seed sown in weedy soil, then all, he's accepted Christ, but he still really wants to be liked. He still wants to be popular. He wants to be influential. He wants his peers to admire him. He wants to be wealthy at a certain amount of, of living that you can't do in, in his life if he's loyal to Christ. He wants all these things. He took them with him into his conversion. And those are the weeds that grow up and choke it out. And you find out, well, he wasn't converted in the first place. He was weedy soil. Time. Time's the only thing that will tell. So that's the seed sown in the third, in the, in the third soil. Uh, a person who has taken the word of God in, but he has kept his love for the world and added the word to it. And that just never, never, never works. Finally, we have the fourth soil. Number four, the seed sown on good earth. On good earth. The parable in verses 8 and 9. And others fell upon the good earth and began giving fruit. One a hundred, the other sixty, and the other thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, what is good earth? Now, before we look off into the distance and start pulling out our ideas of what good earth is, we'll just look at the, at the parable. What's good earth? Well, it's not hard, right? I don't mean it's not hard to figure it out. I mean, it's not hard earth, like the first soil. And it's not rocky earth, like the second soil. And it's not weedy earth, like the third soil. But it is deep earth, like the fourth soil, where the roots can go down, not like the second soil. And fruit can come up, not like the first, second, and third soils. You see, that's what good earth is. The definition is in the context. So, uh, and how does that happen? Remember, I told you, Naturally, all soil is going to be hard, rocky, and weedy. So somebody or something must have come in and plowed it up and removed the rocks and removed the weeds. Something, something has to have happened to have done that so that it is good soil. It doesn't just come good. <laughs> it just doesn't come rock-free and weed-free. Has, something has to be done to it to make that happen. And when that happens and the seed lands on that kind of earth, which in literal real life, it's because the farmer's done this, Right? Because he's gone out and he's gathered all the rocks and made all those rock walls and houses that you see there. Came out of fields. <laughs> and uh, he's gathered it up and he's plucked out the weeds and he's purified the soil the best he can. So, and out of it, he gets a tremendous crop. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. But, but uh, 30, 60, 100 fold, that is, that is a great crop. That, that is ranging from a good crop to a stupendous crop. And the point is, uh, encouragingly, not all the same, but there is fruit. And I find that comforting. Uh, as a Christian, I, I can certainly easily look at other Christians and see how much, far much more fruit they bear in their, in their character, in their walk, in their, in their ministry. That's easy to do. But 
I'm not called to bear their fruit. I'm called to bear the fruit that I can, the God that enables me to bear, and that there be fruit. That's the sign, that there be fruit. And it will be a good, a good crop of fruit. So the interpretation then in verse 23, but he who is sown upon the good earth, this is he who hears the word and comprehends and indeed bears fruit and makes in some cases a hundredfold and others 60 and others 30. So how does Jesus then, I, I, I defined it literally in terms of being not hard, not rocky, not weedy. How does Jesus define it spiritually? He who hears the word and comprehends it. So good soil spiritually means that he hears and comprehends and bears fruit. So he hears it in the first place. And don't you see how much this resonates with the whole Bible and the message of the Bible, that everything that God does with us, he does it by means of what? His word. He does it by means of his word. And so the issue then is, do we hear the word and do we comprehend it? The hard soil is the picture of somebody who doesn't even try to comprehend it, doesn't give it any thought whatsoever. It's just gone. It's just gone. And so this is, uh, this is the opposite of the good soil. The good soil is somebody who hears and he understands what it means. He has some notion, he has some grasp of the implication of what the word of God is. And so he takes it down and it bears fruit in his life. Now you note, this is the minority. This is the blessed minority. This, a farmer should not be surprised to find that not all of his seed comes up. And in terms of the numbers of what Jesus represents, how many of the soils bear fruit? These four different kinds of soil, certainly all four bear fruit, right? No, here we go again, not four. How about three? Do three bear fruit? No. Two, two, do I hear two? Do I hear two? No, I hear one. Only one. A lot of seed goes out, and a lot of the seed does not bear fruit. But one does bear fruit. That's the blessed minority. And this, you see, is the parable he tells at this juncture where the cities have not responded to the preaching. Matthew chapter 10 and chapter 11. Remember that? They did not respond to the preaching of Jesus and his disciples. They didn't repent we read. And where the leaders of the people, chapter 12, questioned everything, challenged everything, wouldn't listen to a word, and finally concluded that this was the power of Satan. So, should it be shocking to his disciples to see that kind of rejection when Jesus tells them, three of these soils don't bear fruit, but one does. And those are the ones that he's concentrating now on and focusing on. So now, in closing then, let's consider briefly what the significance of this is. <coughs> significance of this CD story of the assorted soils. In terms of only one of the four areas, let me ask what the problem was and first look with you, letter A, at what the problem wasn't. Let's talk about what the problem wasn't. What the problem wasn't. Well, was the problem the sower? Was it that he didn't sow right? He should have known better than to throw his, his seed in all these soils. He should have, should have thrown differently. He should have sown differently. No, the problem wasn't the sower. He just did what every Palestinian sower would have done. What every, 
a Galilean sower would have done. He, he sowed just fine. You read this parable over and over and over again, you won't find any fault in the sower uh, uh, and his methods of sowing. That's not the issue. That's not what the parable is about. And so, if that's the case, now again, this is one of those things you may think this is too obvious. Just hang with me, have a little bit of faith, and I'll show you why I'm saying this, why I'm belaboring this. So the solution is not going to be to teach him to sow differently. That if you say, oh yes, I remember the parable of the soils. That's all about how people should sow differently. No, <laughs> that's not at all what this parable is about. That, that, is, that, that not only is not one of the, uh, that's not the central idea of this parable. It's not any of the ideas of this parable. That's not, it's not in the parable at all. He, the sower did nothing wrong. The problem is not the sower. And what else, isn't the pro- what, what else is the problem not? The seed. It's not the seed. It's not, well, you better go out and buy better seed. If the seed you're throwing doesn't bear fruit, you better go get different seed. This, there's not a word of criticism about the seed. This seed is all good seed. It's all full of life. It all, uh, as far as it goes, it will bear a crop. If it's put in the right kind of soil, it will bear fruit. It'll bear a lot of fruit. I mean, it's, you can tell how good the seed is by the fact that when it finally gets on good soil, it bears a bumper crop, a terrific crop. So no, uh, if somebody says, well, I see the problem here, the problem is your seed must not be very good. That only is not the point of the parable. It's not any of the points of the parable. It's completely wrong. Nothing wrong with the sower. Nothing wrong with the seed. So, Roman, I mean, sorry, letter B, then let's talk about what the problem was. Well, what the problem was in terms of the, the symbolism, the parable itself, in every case, there was only one problem, and that problem was the soil. Not the sower. Not the seed, the soil. One was hard packed, the seed didn't even get into it. One was just a thin and the seed died out quickly. The other was mixed with weeds that sprang up and choked it out. It, in every case, it was the soil. It was not the sower, it was not the seed, literally, in terms of the parable. Actually, in terms of the meaning of the parable, what is it? It's the hearers, and specifically, what is it? It's their hearts. It's the heart, because the soil represents the heart. And notice I'm not tapping the, my chest, I'm tapping my head, because that's where the Bible heart is, where we do our thinking and deciding and our cherishing. It's the heart, the center of a man. Um, verse 19, everyone hearing the word of the kingdom and yet not comprehending, the wicked one comes and seizes what has been sown in his heart. Oh, that's the issue. Verse 23, the one sown upon good earth, this is he who hears the word and comprehends. So you see, it's all about the heart. That's the issue. Luke 8, 15, just jot it down. Here's how Luke records Jesus' words. But the seed is in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Well, you see how that, how that counters all the other kinds of soil. It goes down deep and it gets held in and fruit keeps coming up, keeps coming up, keeps coming up. So the problem was the hearts. It was the hearers. It was not the sower. It was not the seed. So what was the solution? Verse 9, what was the solution? Verse 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. 
Now, the parables emphasize the human side. You've got to read the whole Bible. There are passages that stress the cause and passages that stress the effects. Sometimes a Christian is described by his works because that marks the Christian. Sometimes he's described by his faith, which is the cause of the works. And sometimes he's described by the purpose of God, which is the cause of his faith. So here, what's the emphasis on? The emphasis is on how people are hearing the Word of God, because that's this point in Jesus' ministry, remember. The cities have not responded. The leaders have responded abominably. So what now? Well, now is the delay. The kingdom is no longer going to be offered. There will be delay between the first and the second coming. So the human side is emphasized here. If you sow the pure Word of God, uh, then... These are the things that will happen because of the responses of people. But what you must do is you must sow the pure word of God. That's what you can do. That's what I can do. That's what I'm trying to do right now. I can't change your heart. I can't get in and pull out the rocks and the weeds. I can't get in and plow and deepen the soil. That's beyond my power, and it's, it's above my pay grade. It's, it's beyond my calling. This is something I, I, I'll confess to you personally. I've had to have the Lord bring me back to, back to, back to again and again because I get discouraged and he has to make me see I'm getting discouraged because of the things that I can't control, I can't affect. But is it worth it to be a, to be a worker in the Lord's field? Is it worth it to be a sower of his good seed? Worth it. It's a privilege. It's, it's the greatest joy of my life to be able to do it. But the results are going to be up to him. But our part is to sow good, pure seed and lots of it. That's the sower's part. And every believer and every disciple is called to be a sower in that way. To spread the Word of God. But make sure it's the Word of God you're spreading. And when it is, spread lots of it. But then expect these kinds of responses. On the part of the hearer then, the point of the parable is that we need to receive the Word of God deeply, purely, and tenaciously. Not with other things, and not just on, with a surface excited, temporary, quickly fading interest. But take it down deep, hold on to it, no matter what the weather says, and bear fruit from it. That's the message to us. And other scripture shows God's side, that, that the person who is born again, obviously this, that we're describing a born again person, it's the Holy Spirit who causes a person to be born again. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. The wind blows where it wills. And so God gives the new birth, not the will of the flesh, not the will of man, but of God, John says. So God has to plow up the soil, and God has to pull the rocks, and God has to de-weed it, and then plant the word in and give life to it. But that's God's part. We're not called to do God's part. Praise the Lord. Because we can't and we wouldn't and we'd mess it up anyway. So let God do his part, but it's important that we do our part and that we have expectations taught by him. It's not magic. We don't do magic. We're not magic workers. But when we sow the seed of God, we're sowing a life-giving agent. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that seed is the word of God. And so once we've sown the seed, if, if, I, if I can torture the parable just a little bit, once I've sown the seed, it's between the soil and the great harvester. It's, it's between God and the person. I, but my part is to sow it. 
and to be glad for my part and make sure that's what I'm doing. And now to make sure you see, as I say, we'll talk about this more, <clears throat> but see today when, when, when people, church growth experts, top men, when they look and they see, oh, why are children leaving the church, they ask, and why aren't people coming to church? And very often the, it's because of what we teach. They don't want to hear what we teach. They don't want an information download. They don't want an information dump. They want this and this and this and the other thing. And all this stuff, this is all sociology. It's not biblical theology. It's not, it's not taking what the Bible says to do and applying it. It's, it's, it's pragmatism. Well, what we're doing, obviously, is not working. So we've got to figure out something else. So to apply it to the, to the parable here, we've got to change our methods of sowing, or we've got to look for better seed. And you see, that is not Jesus' solution. So... It comes down to, are we content with Jesus' wisdom, or do we think we need to do better? And I hope that to ask that question is to answer it in this fellowship. We will not do better. We will not do better. Our role is to be faithful in sowing the seed, and our role is to be sure to be faithful in receiving the seed, receiving it deeply and holding on to it. So, so what was seedy about this story? Was it seedy in that there were lots of seeds? Yep. There were seeds everywhere. All of them good, all of them pure, all of them alive. Was it seedy in that there was anything disreputable and sordid and low about it? Well, yes. (laughs) Three of the soils were. Three of the soils in terms of the kingdom of God were disreputable, shady, and low because they did not embrace deeply and purely the pure seed of God's word. And so we need the grace of God to plow, to de-rock, and to de-weed the soil of the heart. And as to us as sowers, as people who care about the church of Christ, don't chase after fads. Don't serve the idol of pragmatism. Don't be wooed by the world's methods. Stick to what the Lord says to do. Sow the way he says to sow, sowing the seed he says to sow. Amen? Amen. More in weeks to come. Keep coming. You'll hear it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. And now there's a whole bunch of seed been sown in this time together. And we pray for the work of the Spirit of God, that that seed will find deep purchase in our hearts. And that some, perhaps, who've heard it for the first time, perhaps look back and realize that they thought they were Christians, but they were not. They were weedy. They were shallow, and now you've done a work of grace that they see how desperately they need Christ and Christ alone. Uh, Bring that person to rest on Christ and to lay hold of him and him alone. We thank you so much for your word and all it means to us because of the Christ it shows to us. In Jesus' name, amen.